Good morning, everyone. Uh, go ahead and find your place. If you'd like to come in and you're in the foyer, there are a few seats here. If not, that's fine as well. Uh, go ahead and open up your Bibles to John chapter 12. We're in, today we'll be in John chapter 12, verses 20 through verse 33. It's not a clean cut section as you'll find out. We're going to end at verse 33, whereas your Bible has probably paragraphed that and lumped it together in a little different fashion. Uh, last week we're on John 12, 1 through 9, uh, where Mary anointed the feet of Jesus with the uh, extremely expensive perfume, ointment, myrrh, spikenard, whatever you would want to call it. Different versions cover it differently. But an extremely expensive essential oil is basically how we would put it. That was uh, harvested from India, brought back. It was worth a year's wages. And she poured it on Jesus and poured it on his feet. And then used the absolute best of her, her hair, which is for her glory, to, to, uh, to anoint his feet with. And as we looked at feet washing, It'll come up in a next week or the week after in our text. What's quite common, people wore sandals to keep the homes clean. They would have the lowest person in the house, uh, be that a servant, a kid, or whoever it might be, wash the feet of the guest. And uh, here, she does not wash the feet with water and towel, as Jesus does later for his disciples. She uses a year's worth of wages of this ointment on his feet and uses her hair to do so. And there we saw the difference of her, uh, her versus Jesus. Judas. Judas saw this happening and he was a thief and all he was thinking about is how he could get a hold of this if she just would have blessed him with it to take care of. He would have uh, taken care of the year's wages of that anointment uh, in his own way, which would have been thievery. So you have two different hearts exposed there. Both people hanging with Jesus, around Jesus quite often, except one is a true believer, one is not a true believer. In the book of John, this, this type of belief and unbelief, what is real belief, ebbs and flows in almost every single chapter. Those who appear to be with Jesus often are not truly with Jesus. And over time, their hearts are revealed. Uh, last week, we also looked at the grand entrance, you might say, as Jesus presents himself on Lamb Selection Day, as he enters into Jerusalem for Passover week, uh, all of them were instructed to bring or to select the lamb that their family would use as sacrifice. He brings himself in, not with a lamb, but he is the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. He presents himself uh, as that sacrifice. He presents himself riding on a donkey that fulfills the Zechariah passage. Uh, talking about the king would arrive riding on a donkey. So we looked at that and we looked at what they chanted and how they did so. They, they uh, were loudly saying Hosanna. It's a, it's a word that, that comes across oddly in our language, but it's a transliteration from Hebrew, a word that literally means save now we pray. And this was done uh, a couple of times in Jewish history, not recorded in the Bible, but in the Jewish history books, first and second Maccabees, whereas uh, Simon Maccabees had just kicked out uh, and regained Jerusalem. They kicked out the Greeks and regained it. Uh, the crowd threw palm branches down and shouted Hosanna. They did this again years later for his brother did something very similar. So we find out that this, this, is, this palm branch ceremony not that it's biblical, but it has to do with them seeing the one that is coming in as their deliverer. And this is important because past times it was done for the earthly kingdom of Jerusalem. That is what we commonly see still happening. Even the disciples are wanting this earthly kingdom, the earthly king, Jesus to reign right there to deliver them from not the Greeks or the Assyrians, but from the Roman occupiers who have taken over Israel. So they're, they're still mixed up, and we'll find that to be true because they're yelling, Hosanna, they're yelling, Son of David, they're yelling that he's the prophet who's come into the world, etc. And yet, let's see, that was Sunday. Uh, by Thursday, they're saying, give us Barabbas. By Friday, he's on the cross. So we see that even though they're saying these things, acknowledging seemingly 
uh, that he's their deliverer, they still don't have it right. They want him to deliver them right then, right there. They're not seeing the big picture that he's come to die. And that's how he's truly going to deliver them ultimately from their biggest problem, which is not Rome. It's not the government, by the way. The biggest problem man faces is sin and the wrath of God. All right, let's continue on today. We'll look at verses 20 through verse 33. I'll read them, then we'll look into them more uh, deeply. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will be my servant also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, This voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time to dive into your word, to study your word. God, help us to gain a clear understanding of, of John's intent in this passage here today. Help us to see the beauty that Jesus is continuing to go forward in obedience, knowing that his hour has arrived, that he would be put to death, that he would be mocked, that he would be spit on, cast a crown of thorns on his head, backlashed, and above all, receive the wrath that we justly deserved. We thank you for him willingly going to the cross in our place and the salvation that he accomplishes for us. In Jesus' name we pray and worship you. Amen. All right, if you go back to uh, verse 20, and we'll go through verse 22, uh, it simply says, Now among those who went up to the worship at the feast were some Greeks. That's going to be key to today's sermon, Greeks. You might circle it, underline it, make a mental note, whatever you'd like to. So these came to Philip, uh, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. Now, out of nowhere, seemingly... If we're just reading through verse after verse, uh, the emphasis jumps here in chapter 12 from Jews to Greeks. There just in verse 19, we saw the reaction of the Pharisees. Uh, look at that with me, verse 19, to see the contrast here. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. So in context of the past experiences of the Pharisees, we know that they had put out scouts before the feast to find Jesus, to arrest Jesus. They've tried to put Jesus to death. They were conniving. They were con coming up with plans to get him to arrest him to put him to death and yet he's just come in and now it seems like the whole world has come after him now there's also some truth in this as far as the whole world has come after him they do usually mean that lots and lots of people which would be obvious with all these crowds coming to Jesus as and with Jesus as he's coming to Jerusalem but also there's a there's seemingly implied here that it is more than possibly just Jews and that's what we get Get here in the next passage, verse uh, verse the verse one today, verse twenty says some Greeks came in and wanted to see Jesus. Now. This seems to be another contrast, uh, kind of like Mary and kind of like Judas. And here we have a contrast again with the Pharisees who wanted to put Jesus to death with these Greeks who have come to worship God and they desire to see Jesus. And this, this, this brings us back to, keep your place there, we're going to do a little traveling various times a day. But look at John chapter 1, verse 11 through 13. John chapter 1, verse 11 through 13. 
It's not a new concept. John has introduced this at, in John chapter 1 and in multiple places throughout the book of John that Jesus is not just the Savior of the Jews. He is not only the Jewish Messiah. And in fact, most of the Jews are going to reject Jesus. As we find those in charge of the Jewish religion, the Sanhedrin made up of Pharisees and Sadducees, that, that body of, of, of leaders and rulers are the ones that are going to put Him to death. But look at John 1, 11 through 13. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Who is he talking about? Well, Jesus is, of course, an Israelite. He is a Jew. He came to his own, his people did not receive him. Look at verse 12. But to all, and this is going to be the emphasis of today that these Greeks are coming, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And so we see what, what is arriving as we get through, the, get through the book of John. It's introduced over here in John chapter 1. That he is not the failed Messiah because the Jews did not receive him. Because the Sanhedrin did not receive him. He is successful in that he has come for the all, not just the Jews. So these Greeks coming to him is highly significant as he is approaching the cross. Uh, fast forward, look at John chapter 10, verse 16 several places we could go to. You'll go to some of them in discipleship. But, but look at John chapter 10, verse 16. And we recall where Jesus talking about His sheep uh, and then Him letting them know that he's, it's not just Jewish sheep. It's not just the 12 tribes of Israel that He has come. Look what He says in verse 16. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. And again, this is going to be adding light to today's passage as we look into it, that the Jews rejected Jesus, the Pharisees rejected Him, they were troubled with everyone wanting to come to Him, they wanted Him put to death. The Greeks come in, and they want to see Jesus. And this incident, all we have is that. The Greeks come, they want to see Jesus, that's all we have. We don't have why they came, the question they have is not there, it's just introducing Greeks came. And another word for Greeks, oftentimes we use the word Gentiles, it is non-speaking uh, they don't speak the Jewish language. They are not of the 12 tribes of Israel. So in Jewish thought, everyone else was Greek slash Gentile. All right. So we have them introduced. They're wanting to come to Jesus. They want to talk to Jesus. Philip and Andrew apparently uh, accommodate that. But we don't have the question. But we do seem to have the answer and what, what follows. All right. So look at verse 23. That's all we have. The Greeks come to see Jesus. And look at verse 23. Jesus answered them. So apparently their question has to do with Greeks, Gentiles. What about us? Uh, well, you, we see you doing all these things. What about us? All right. Look at verse 23. He answered them. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And we'll get to this next week, but before we get into the hour here, this word, the Son of Man, it comes from Daniel 7.14. And in Daniel 7.14, uh, there we have the Jesus coming before the Ancient of Days. And while He's before the Ancient of Days, uh, we find that He receives all power, all glory, all honor. Uh, to turn there with me. I don't have that one on the... Up, up there today, but go ahead and try your best to find the book of Daniel. It is relatively small. Feel free to use your table of contents. No one will shame you. All right. Uh, Daniel chapter 7, verse 14. Well, you really have to read the 13 as well, it looks like, to get that title in. All right. Uh, I'm just going to read uh, verse 13 and 14 there of Daniel 7. Uh, so, so Jesus says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. This, the Greeks coming, and then Him saying, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. 
The Son of Man ties you back into Daniel 7.14 where Jesus derives this title from. This title is the most self-claimed title of Jesus. This is how He talks of Himself most often, by far, more than any other title. And it comes from 13 and 14. So look at 13 and 14. Daniel says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. Make sure you have that underlined, highlighted, whatever you want, because this is important for Jesus taking on this title. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. This would be God the Father. So we have the Son of Man who is before God the Father, Ancient of Days. Verse 14, And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve Him. And this is our point of today. And I believe one of the reasons we have the Greeks coming, and Jesus answers them by saying, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. That, that, should, that Son of Man title goes back to Daniel 7.14, where Daniel sees this vision of one like a Son of Man. So we have Jesus incarnate, who is now glorified before God. Remember, He came, He was in heaven without a mortal body, a physical body. He's come to earth. He's resurrected that body. He's come back in before the Ancient of Days. And it is not just for the Jewish people. All nations, that verse 14, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve Him. So this, this ties right in to where we're at today. And there's many that think that, that the Greeks came to Philip and Andrew because they had Greek names, unlike the other apostles who had Jewish names. Then most likely they spoke Greek uh, as a, a secondary language. So the Greeks come to them to go to Jesus for them, and most likely asking, what about us? And now He says, the Son of Man has come. It's now the hour to be glorified. Going back to this, He's not just the Jewish Messiah. He is for all people, all nations. Alright, go, go back over now uh, to Daniel, I'm sorry, to John chapter 12. In this verse, verse uh, 23, it says the hour has come. And we're going to emphasize that for a moment. This passage is, is highly significant for the book of John because it marks a clear divide from what has been to what is now coming. Alright, it is, it is very clear. Uh, past, he has spoken about the hour that is to come. I'm just going to quickly review a few of those with you. John 2.4, for instance, look at this. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. This is at the time where he was at the wedding. They ran out of wine and he turned water into wine. My hour has not yet come. Uh, John 4.21, Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming, still future tense, when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. As he was speaking to the woman at the well. Uh, John 7.30, so they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Still future related, right? Looking into the future. John 8.20, these words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. So what hour is he talking about? This is a way of speaking about his great climactical moment, the time when he would be crucified and glorified. And we have that answer basically here in verse 23, and we'll get more development to it. But this is the point. The why He is here. Paul later tells Timothy, he says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. I mean, this is it. He is going to the cross to die for our sins. He just did not just come to live. He came to die as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And now, John introduces, the hour has come. What he had talked about previously about the hour coming, the hour is not yet here, the hour is going to come. Now he says, it's here. This is it. It's the final few days of Jesus' life on earth. A few other times now where we get to that hour change. Uh, look at John 12, 27. And you'll notice the change. He doesn't say the hour is yet to come or is coming. It's, it's now here. Uh, now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. He's here. He's in that time, that time allotment. Not that it is literal hour as we think of. It's a figurative way of speaking, but it's time. Uh, John 13, 1. 
Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Again, this hour had come. This hour involves his crucifixion and his resurrection and his glorification. Uh, 17, 1, John 17, the last one I'm going to mention today. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. All right, so the point is, is there is a big change that happens today in the writing of John. Uh, Jesus had been speaking of the hour that is to come. Now we have the hour is here. And now we have the final few days of Jesus' life on earth. And this is the hour. If you can put underline the or however you want to put it in all caps, this is like us, us saying the hour has come. It means this is the point. This is it. We are, we are reaching the climactic point of the life and purpose of Jesus. Look at verse 24. And Jesus lets it be known that involved in this hour is His glorification. It's time for the Son of Man to be glorified. But also it involves uh, the, 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 before the glory, before the crown, uh, there is pain, and there is suffering, and there is death as well. Look at verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. So he announces to the Greeks and to apparently the disciples who came to ask him this question, uh, like, yes, I am the Savior of all, everyone, not just the Jews. It is time, it is now time for the Son of Man to be glorified. But again, it's not like the bulk of the Jews and people are thinking. He is not coming to be put on a pedestal. He is not coming to be reigning in Jerusalem as the Jews previously wanted him to back in chapter 6. They wanted to take him by force and make him king, right? And now he's just raised Lazarus from the dead. I mean, he can provide food nonstop. He could raise our, our soldiers back to life. Perfect king, right? He could do all things. That's not why he's come. So he says, I've come to be glorified, but not yet. First, I must die. And my death is going to bring across, bring about the multiplication. And there's going to be many. And he compares it here as, as usual. Just compares it to an agricultural analogy. Everyone was involved in growing things, harvesting things, etc. Here it is a seed that goes into the ground that is planted. One single seed. The seed dies. But from that seed comes an entire plant. Be whatever it is. You put one seed of corn in. Out comes you know, thousands of kernels of corn later. The, the idea is that one goes into the ground as Jesus is going to be put to death, is going to die, but he's going to be risen and new life is given and there, the great multiplication happens. Uh, this is seen in multiple places, but this is a key uh, uh, fulfillment of a prophecy. Uh, if you want to turn to Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, the entire chapter is really about uh, the, the, the last uh, day of Jesus' life and what happens on the cross is just detail after detail after detail. But I just want you to look at Isaiah 53, chapter 10 and 11. And just look at how, uh, again, this is what was prophesied, that, that the Messiah would be crucified, that He would die. Why He would die was to increase, that there would be a great multiplication. He would die for, not Himself, but He would die for the many. Just look at verse 10 and 11 there in Isaiah 53. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. All right, so here we see this prophecy hinted at when what Jesus is talking about over here. It is the hour, the hour has come, Son of Man must be glorified, but before that, there is a death that has to happen that is going to increase, that is going to multiply. And we here we see this in verse 11 of Isaiah 53 that out of the anguish of his one soul, all right, and then you keep going down. He will make many 
to be accounted righteous. How is he going to do so? He is going to bear their sins. So he is going to bear their sins and make others righteous. So this is what Jesus is hinting at. Yes, glorification is coming. It doesn't look like most of you think, but there is going to be death. But from my death, there's going to be a great multiplication. And that's what we definitely find as we continue to read and continue to read through the book of Acts, right? All right, let's turn over to, uh, back to John. Look at uh, chapter 12, verse 25. So after announcing um, his death, uh, he relates it to and applies it to his followers. He says, whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So here he's explaining that, yes, I'm on my way to the cross, and then there will be glorification uh, after that. But also, it's almost like, but don't think this is just me. Also, this involves you. And if you are a Christian, and if, if you think that you're going to be, uh, if heaven is now, you're greatly mistaken. There's great tribulation. There's trials. There's calamities, as Paul said. There is great suffering in this life. Your different Christians suffer to different degrees, physically, emotionally, spiritually, financially, etc., etc., okay? But the point of this is, Jesus is saying, it's not just I that I'm going to suffer, then be glorified. But he said, just expect the same. He says, don't love this world, don't love this life, but instead be living a sacrificial life. So the life of those who truly follow Jesus will resemble the self-sacrificing nature of Christ. You think back to two opposites, Mary and Judas. Mary was willing to give her all for Jesus. And then you have Judas who is willing to take it all to live life high here on earth and what he could do with that. So he's two different hearts revealed. That seems to be what Jesus is saying here as well. Uh, many places we see this, the, the different contrast. Uh, we live in the world. We can't help but live in this world unless we die and go to heaven. But we live in this world, but yet the world is often spoken of in the Bible as the system uh, that, is, that is ran by Satan, all the other sons of disobedience, it's a worldly sinful system, all right? So more is implied here than just the world. Uh, it, it's also everything involved in the world. For instance, look at 2 Timothy 4, verse 10. 2 Timothy 4, verse 10, Paul had someone that was with him, hanging out with him, helping him in ministry, apparently. Uh, seemingly a believer, but as often is the case, over time, their heart was revealed that they were not a true believer. 2 Timothy 4.10, Paul says to Timothy, For Demas, D-E-M-A-S, uh, in love with this present world has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. All right, so in love with this present world, he deserted Paul. Uh, this is that contrast again. Why did Demas abandon Paul and the missionary work that he was doing? It's because it's a contrast again. Paul is following Christ, self-sacrificial, giving up everything to follow Christ. This is, goes right back to what Jesus is teaching today. Versus Demas did that for a little while, but you know what? That's tough. I'm going back to the world because he loves the world. He loves the here and now. So he goes back to the world. Uh, a couple of other places. Look over at Matthew 16, verse 24 through 27. Talking about the difference in following Christ and following the world. And this, this the world is always after us. That's what we have to realize the world is always pressing in on us, always trying to draw us out to it. It could be through music. It could be through television. It could be through people that you hang out with. It could be your own selfish, natural desires as well. And there's always this, this pulling, this pulling, but we are supposed to be going the opposite way. Look at Matthew 16, 24 through 27. Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, Woo, deny himself, and take up his own cross and follow me. Whoever would save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world 
and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in glory to of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Very similar to what we're finding here today as John is talking after announcing the Son of Man, the hour has come, uh, there must be death, then the multiplication, but also he applies it to them. If you truly are following after me, and you truly are going to end up where I am going to end up, you must not love the world. There must be this sacrificial life that you're striving to obey God, looking to Christ, putting away sin, and not in love with this world, not, in, not loving it. So here in Matthew 16, 24, he says, or through 27, he says, what if you gain the whole world? I mean, truly think about that for a moment. You, you finally got your house paid off. You got the cars you wanted. And all of a sudden, you, you inherit crazy amounts of wealth. Uh, and all of a sudden, you gain everything. And you truly gain the entire world. What, what does it profit if you gain everything, have everything you wanted, the moment you die? And you forfeit your soul. Eternity is a long time to be wrong, right? And so you, you live here for a very short amount of years. You have all the comforts you ever wanted supposedly in life. You have houses all over the place, vehicles all over the place. Go wherever you, you want to go. You supposedly have everything that you want. And yet the moment you die, it's all done. And death comes for everybody. So that day is coming. We all know that that is coming. So it's an illusion. It is deception that people think they can gain. It's materialism. If I get this, if I get this, if I have more of this, it's an illusion that if I have this much stuff, I will be happy. I will have pure joy, finally. But yet we find out, statistics show, the suicide rate is higher amongst millionaires than it is amongst those in poverty. Why is that? Because they finally get everything they have and realize they can't get enough. This world, no matter how much of it you own, will never satisfy your soul. But so many people uh, surrender it all, give it all up to gain more in this life and then lose everything. Um, what is the benefit of gaining riches, fame, fortune, or the whole world when none of it can go with you? And this is basically what Jesus is saying here. It's like, don't live this life only for this life, only for temporary happiness in this world that will not last. Live for Christ. One last one in that regards. Look over at Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 2. Romans chapter 12, verse 1 through 2. Uh, Christians definitely live in the world. We cannot help but live in this world. There's only one of them to live in, but yet we do not have to live like the world, right? Romans 12, 1 through 2, Paul makes this distinction about the world also in sacrificing. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And by testing, you may discern what is the will of God that is good and acceptable and perfect. So here we see this verse 1. He says, brothers, submit your bodies as living sacrifices. This is, this, is, this is a huge difference compared to the Old Testament. Old Testament, you brought your sacrifices to the temple. The priest would then sacrifice your animal. It, it, it revealed lots of things. It revealed your guilt as well. Uh, it revealed your generosity. It revealed your obedience to Christ. But that... that, that for that animal, whatever was presented, would be fully sacrificed, fully consumed in the fire, and would go supposedly up to God, right? It was the symbolism there. It went up. But now, Paul says, no more sacrifice at the temple. You are the living sacrifice. What, what does that mean? Well, it means you are supposed to be giving all of you to Christ. Not, not in death, but all the way up until you die. It's, it's living. You're a living sacrifice, giving your all to Christ. Everything, your home life, your, your work life, your dreams, your motivations, your goals in this life, everything you're putting in that, I am sacrificing my life to Christ. And this is the opposite way of thinking than our world thinks. The world is all about me. It's all about I, right? It's all about what can I gain out of this life? Look at verse 2 there in Romans uh, chapter 12. 
uh, in contrast, he says, do not be conformed to this world. The world is always trying to pressure you to become like it. That is the world system. You see it played out on media in a thousand different ways. The world is saying, look like this, act like this, believe like this, think like this. It's always pressing. It says, do not be conformed to the world. But what's he say? Be transformed. Become something different than the world. Transform to something different than what the world is saying be. And instead, he says, well, by the renewal of your mind, by testing, that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Instead of the world pressing in saying, this is good, do this, right? Act like this, believe this. So no, test these things. Test these things whether they're right or not in the eyes of God and pursue righteousness, pursue holiness against the world. So we, we constantly see this play in Scripture of the world system versus, versus God's way of living and thinking, all right? Go back to John chapter 12. Let's look at verse 27. So he lets them know that he is on his way to the cross, but also at the same time is letting his followers know there should be sacrifice with you as well before your glory, uh, before your crown. Uh, there are thorns involved. There is suffering involved. Uh, verse 27, he says, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. For this purpose I have come to this hour. So here in verse 27, we see him kind of pose this hypothetical question. Uh, Father, save me from this hour. What shall I say? He sees the hour coming. Then he answers it, though. He says, for this purpose I have come to this hour. But we do see that his soul is troubled. Now we know that he is troubled, and what most most of the time we when people think of his soul being troubled, they, they pull from Mark or one of the other gospels. Look over at Mark chapter 14, here in the Garden of Gethsemane, right before he is to be betrayed and arrested, and the events spiral quickly that evening that lead to his crucifixion in the morning. Um, we see that his soul is troubled. I believe it is Luke that records the sweat drops of blood, so much so. But Mark 14, 32 through 36, we see this as well. And when they went to the place called Gethsemane, and he said to this, his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. All right, and the point of the, bringing this passage in is, again, we see that he is very sorrowful, even to death. And why is he troubled? Why is he sorrowful? Not only as, remember, Jesus is fully human and fully God. He is on his way to face immense physical pain. But that is not the highest of the pain. The highest of the pain is he is going to receive the wrath of not only man, but also God for our sins. The hour had come. Now it is here. He is troubled. He is sorrowful. He's sweating drops of blood. All that's happening just a few days from now. But we see that the trouble, the sorrow, the tense, he knows it's coming. And already on this day, he says, my soul is troubled. What shall I pray? Shall I pray this not happen? No. I am continuing on forward. Look at verse 28, back in John chapter 12. And the hour has come, and he is moving forward. Verse 28, he says, Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, This voice has come for your sake, not mine. So, interesting point here. Uh, here you have the voice from heaven after Jesus prayed. Very similar to Jesus rising, raising Lazarus from the dead. Uh, the moment he spoke to God... Lazarus came forth, and it's a very, very immediate thing that happened. Here you have an immediate response as Jesus prays out loud. Uh, he prays out loud, and the Father answers him directly from heaven audibly. Uh, this will be the third time 
where Jesus hears the voice of God and God speaks from heaven. Great trivia question. All right. Mark 1.11, you have a voice from heaven. You are my beloved son with you in whom I'm well pleased. When did that happen? At Jesus' baptism, right? Uh, you have the voice of God. The saying, in, uh, you are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. Uh, great announcement. Huge announcement. That this is directly from heaven. Mark 9 verse 7 records another time. And a cloud overshadowed them and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Uh, when was this? This was that transfiguration event, we often call it, where the, the, the three of the disciples and Jesus went up on the mountain, and there you have Moses and Elijah who appear, and Jesus is transformed before their eyes, transfigured, where he doesn't look just like a man anymore. He is glorified. It's so bright they can't even look. Uh, the, the, the intensity of it is so bright. Then the voice from God announcing to the three disciples, this is my son, listen to him. And then fast forward to today, he is, he is just a few days away from being crucified, and a voice from heaven again uh, comes out and says, the, um, oh, where did we go? Uh, the voice came from heaven, sorry, verse 28. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. All right, now it is interesting that some of the people do not understand what the voice is saying. And it, it's, it's a point of curiosity, and we really don't have a clear answer for this. It could be something, as Jesus refers in John chapter 10, my sheep hear my voice. All right, so it could be that there are unbelievers there that do not hear Jesus' voice because they're not God the Father's voice because they're not believers. Highly possible. All right, we don't know exactly what that is, reasoning is, but we do see something very similar happening in Acts 22. If you want to turn over there with me, feel free to. Acts 22. Hint, it's on the road to Damascus. Whose calling is this going to be? It's going to be Paul's, right? Uh, Saul or Paul, however you want to say, his calling. And we, he hears the voice. But does everyone else he's with hear the voice? It's interesting. Look at verse 7 of Acts 22. And we'll read through verse 9. And I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who are with me saw the light. But look at this but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. So here we see Paul clearly hearing exactly what Jesus is saying. We have those who he is with, and we imagine this is a, quite an entourage. He has been given papers from the Sanhedrin to go and to arrest Christians and to drag them out of their homes and to haul them back to Jerusalem. So he is on the way in there to do such a thing. He's not by himself going to be doing this. He's bringing his entourage of soldiers, of helpers to help him do such a thing. None of them understand what is being heard. So again, you have a similar situation there. So possibly... Uh, those around Jesus were not believers, as highly possible. As some of them said, it must have thundered, uh, giving this a natural kind of instead of supernatural uh, intent. Uh, others said maybe it was the voice of an angel. Some of them are describing something has uniquely happened here. But John lets us know this is what the voice says. I will glorify it. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. And so even though Jesus is on his way to be crucified, and to die for the many, he is, has been glorified, but he will be even glorified again. He will come before the Ancient of Days. He will receive all power, honor, and glory for all nations. All right? Uh, look at verse 31. Go back to John 12 if you moved away. John 12, verse 31 through 33. He says, Now is the judgment of the world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. And he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Now, to begin with, uh, who is the ruler of this world? Uh, your version might say prince of this world. That's absolutely fine. Uh, the implication here is this is Satan that he is talking about. We could go to multiple places, but look over at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 through 3. We'll see, we'll, we'll see where Paul uh, announces 
uh, Satan similarly and calls him the prince of this world, a prince of the power of the air. But Satan is the ruler. He is the prince of this world. He is announced here by Jesus and by Paul. That does not mean that he is sovereign equal to God. All right. Uh, whatever rule Satan and demons are also referred to as authorities and powers have, it is delegated. It is, it is underneath the sovereignty of God. There in the book of Job, we see that Satan was allowed to do nothing to Job or to others except what God allowed. All right, so he is ruler, he is prince, but is not his power and authority is not equal to God. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, uh, I chose this today also because you see uh, that, that love of world also pulled into here that we talked about earlier. Look at verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. Another way to speak of Satan, prince or ruler of the power of the air. The spirit... That is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So here we, we find that unbelievers are actively following Satan. Ephesian, the Ephesian believers used to be like that, but now they are no longer. But they were following Satan. How are they following Satan? I had this talk with a, a guy yesterday. Uh, you follow Satan not by following a person in a red suit with a tail and hoven feet and horns on his head, all right? You follow Satan by doing what the world is doing. That's what you're doing is following Satan. You follow Satan by doing what you want to do and not what God wants you to do, by following your own sinful flesh, all right? So you follow Satan by, by just going along with the world, being conformed to the world. That's what he says here. So they were, they were following Satan, the ruler, the prince, uh, prince of the power of the air, uh, that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, following them, uh, carrying out your own evil desires in the body and mind. That's how you follow Satan now. Now, the question is, though, here in uh, verse 31, is an extremely key verse, you might say. Uh, to some of your eschatological views, your end time views, all right? And we just have a little time to get into this, and even though you, many of you would like to spend years on this, all right? Uh, just a little bit today. But what, how and in what way is Satan cast out? This is really important. All right, so if you go back to uh, verse 31, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. So if Satan is still active, then in what way is he cast out? Because you have him being cast out, but yet over here in Ephesians, you have him still being active. And, and, and you have him in verse two, 2, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Somehow he's been cast out, but yet somehow he's still active. But yet this casting out, when is he going to be cast out? It has to do with this final hour that Jesus is about to be crucified. He is about to be glorified. He is about to be lifted up. And all this is tied together. Verse 31 is tied in with the verses before it and the verses after it. And we need to keep it in context. So the ruler of this world is going to be cast out. When is it going to happen? In the verse 32, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. Uh, this is extremely important that all that we've been kind of referencing, the Greeks have now come. Uh, Jesus says, and it is now the hour for the Son of Man, which ties us back over to Daniel 7, 13 and 14, that for all people, all nations, all right, then the, here he brings that back up again. That's the ruler of this world is going to be cast out. And, verse 32, that he will draw all people to himself. Jesus is not talking about universalism here, but he is talking about all as in not distinctly Jews, not distinctly the, the 12 tribes of Israel, but Jews, Gentiles. He's answering the Greeks here. This is important, that he is going to cast the rule of this world out by dying on the cross, and then he will draw all people to himself. Now this is, I say this goes into your eschatology because uh, uh, many view, well not many views, a millennial view, uh, which believes that we're in the, in, oh, I'll get to that in a minute, hold on. Uh, this, uh, this is going to be too much here. But look at Revelation, look at Revelation 20 verse 2 through 3. 
the verse we're reading here today in uh, John chapter 12, verse 31, the cross-reference for that is going to be Revelation 20, primarily verse 3. All right, but I'm going to read verse 2 and 3 in Revelation. And he sees the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. All right, so obviously the book of Revelation has lots of symbolism in it. Uh, some claim to read it literally, but you would not want to read it literally where it is meant to be symbolic. So you have to read it as it has been written. Same with the book of Daniel. It's apocalyptic language. It's highly symbolic, and to read symbolic language as literal and not symbolic, you arrive at the wrong destination, okay? So there is a lot of symbolism here. One thing we find that's very important in this this part of Revelation is that he is going to be locked up. Now the amillennial and most postmillennial views will see this in connection with what is happening as Jesus is, is dying on the cross, rising from the dead. The ruler of this world is cast out. In what way is he cast out? That context in John chapter 12 is highly important. Greeks come. Jesus announces he's a son of man for all people, all nations. He is going to draw all people to himself, not just the Jews. If you look at the Old Testament, who is it primarily written about, right? It is, is the Israelites. It is the Jews. What is new in the New Testament, you get into the book of Acts and you see it all played out as a thing over the day of Pentecost. Uh, the, the, Peter stands up to preach. All the other people receive the Holy Spirit. They speak in other languages to to all these people who have come from all these other places in their languages now. What has happened? This salvation is now for all. Then you get to the Samaritans who are half Jew, half Gentile, being saved, just like the Jews are being saved. Then you get to the home of Cornelius, who's a Roman centurion Gentile. He is saved exactly like the Jews were saved at Pentecost, received the Holy Spirit just like they did, spoken languages just like they did. And what are we finding? Jesus has come for everyone. So there's there, the amillennial and some postmillennials would say that, that Satan is cast out. In what way is he cast out? He is still active in the world. What has opened up? He is no longer, according to Revelation 20, if you see this as a symbolic fulfillment as what Jesus is doing, how is Satan defeated? He cannot deceive the nations any longer. So the amillennial view would have us have Satan now being cast out upon the cross there with all that happens. Now the gospel goes forth. If you look at the Great Commission, if you look at the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 19 through 20, uh, Jesus says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. And this is, this is key to what we're looking at today. Uh, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and behold, I will be with you always till the end of the age. So that Satan is cast out. In what way? The nations were blinded by Satan. Israel was told to take over, go into the promised land. How were they supposed to take over? Did they have a great commission to go into the promised land and evangelize? No, that was not what they were supposed to do. They were to go in with sword, right? How is this different from what we are supposed to do? We are supposed to go into all the nations now because Satan has been cast out and bring the gospel into the nations. And this is a massive change from Old Testament into New Testament. It's hinted at, but then in the New Testament you see this fully played out, right? Uh, look around the room. Uh, if everyone gave their exact nationality and where they're from, you would find this to be true. All of the, all nations are now coming to Christ. Satan has been cast out in this way. And now, I told you I was getting going to get too much into this. Very quickly, I'm going to paraphrase this, okay? These verses today are, are very important to the amillennial view. The amillennial view, throw this on the screen, just some highlights quickly, okay? And if you need the notes afterwards, I'll be glad to shoot them to you. Your table leaders also have them uh, on their phones if you'd like to have them sent to you. The amillennial view says that Satan is now bound. He's bound in the way 
that He can no longer deceive the nations. The gospel gets to go forth to the nations now. Uh, we are in the last days, in the millennium now. So a thousand years is figurative, it is symbolic, it is not a literal thousand years. It started with uh, the last days there, as Jesus announces, the hour has come, Satan's defeat, and the gospel going forth. It closes out with the return and judgment of Christ. All right, post-millennial view is very similar in lots of regards. Most of them will uh, view Satan as bound, as the all-millennial view. Gospel is going forth. The world, though, will become majority Christians is a key difference between post-mill and all-mill. They will believe that the, the Christians will actually rule the earth for a thousand-year period. Some of them believe it's literal. Some believe that thousand years is symbolic. So they believe that Christians uh, will rule here during a for a thousand years, and then Christ will come. So that makes it different than the all-millennial view. Some... Even even very popular guys right now, probably the most popular guy that's espousing that view says that that is not coming for who knows when, another two or three thousand years, when it could possibly come. So it's, it's not like it's right here and imminent, but they say that that is going to happen. So that means after... Uh, Jesus is coming after the millennium, okay? Two other views pretty quickly. Uh, this one got very popular in the 1900s, dispensational premillennial view. Uh, Satan is not bound according to this. Uh, church and Israel are two separate groups of people. Uh, rapture, they, this is where you, those who believe in the rapture would usually find themselves in this camp. It's really the only camp that, that would be, uh, be there. There will be a rapture. There will be tribulation. Then Jesus will come before the millennium to earth and set up a thousand year kingdom followed by the judgment. Uh, so that's the dispensational premillennial view. Last one is historic premillennialism is different than the previous. Gospel goes forth, but society grows increasingly evil. Tribulation, Christ returned to earth, millennium, then the judgment. All right, so that, that's a lot. It's too much to drop on you right there in one spot. I fully understand that. Uh, there will not be a test in discipleship. Okay, the point, main point of this I want you to see, though, is that, that how has Satan been cast out? Because that's important to know. Uh, I believe there's, there's the, the, we need to see that it must be somehow tied into the, the gospel now going forth to the nations. Whereas previously the nations were deceived, Satan is bound according to Revelation 20, and he no longer has the power to deceive the nations. So what are we supposed to do with the gospel now? Go to the nations, right? So this has got that it's got to be there. There's something right that, that is important there that I think the amillennialists get right. Uh, and, and and to that part degree, many of the post mills get right as well. So Historically, as far as these eschatological views, uh, there have been differing views, but all three agree on three essentials. This is important because a lot of people, I mean, you can, they'll be loving a brother or sister in Christ, and this is like the best thing since sliced bread, and all of a sudden they find out that they're one of the other camps they've arrived at. And it's like they might as well be Satan incarnate, and, and we, that's not the way it's supposed to be. Because if you fast forward any of the, those four views to its ultimate end, you arrive at the same spot. That's really important, all right? So no matter your disagreement over here on pre-mail, post-mail, post-trib, all these things that can come into the equation here, over here, you all land at the same spot, all right? Everybody lands there. So you want to be careful not to... You know, Satanize everyone that has a different view with you on the end times. All right, so three key points that we all have in common no matter what. Jesus will return. God will raise all humans. Jesus will judge all humanity. And no matter where you line up on these eschatological views, keep sharing the gospel. That is highly important, all right? Don't rest on your haunches because your eschatological view doesn't uh, seem to promote the gospel as much as others do. Uh, that's not the case. You're in direct disobedience to Christ, if that's the case. Continue to share the gospel. And we don't, we don't see uh, the, these matters seem to be very divisive today, but we don't want them to divide Christianity. They are important, and you, you can look into them and, and, and arrive where you want to arrive. One thing I have found is that 99.9% .9 of Christians that have a view have arrived there too quickly. And they arrive there without 
researching other views and without usually getting a one author or one view because they heard it somewhere and just diving into that, not looking else and looking other places, all right? So be careful with that, but the point of all that is, is today's passage, how is Satan cast out? This, this can tie in to some of those eschatological views. All right. Uh, in summary, we find that it is now Jesus' hour. And over the next few weeks or years, however long we have in the book of John, uh, we will be in his last hour. And even though he has, it's, he's talking about one hour, it's figurative. And uh, so it will take us quite some time to go through that last hour. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that Jesus Christ has come and he has progressed forward into his last hour, knowing exactly what it entailed, that he would take our sins upon himself and that he would die and through his death would be the multiplication, the many would come, that we would be made righteous because of his sacrificial death. We thank you as we see these things today. Lord, to help us to, to not be like many of those who surrounded him, yelling Hosanna and shouting Son of David and the prophet and deliverer, the one who came to save them. But yet later when they, he was not the Messiah they wanted, being more than willing to crucify him or to take a robber in his place, a murderer in his place. God, help us to truly see who Jesus is. He is the Messiah. He is the Savior. He is the great Hosanna in the highest, the one who has been sent to save us not just from things on this earth, but ultimately from our sin and from the wrath that we deserve for our sin. And if there's anyone today, Lord, who has been around Christians, around believers, uh, and, and hear these things, but has yet not, has not believed, God, we pray that you would convict them of their sin. May they see that they will die, they will face judgment, and their only solution is to be made righteous. And that can only happen through the one who lived the perfect righteous life, Jesus. And it's through his death that we are made righteous. May they trust in Jesus today for their salvation.